Welcome to Emil Franzik's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. I got to tell you, that man was a philosopher. <laughs> when our TV shows were better, uh, were, were, when they were Westerns, were better than they are uh, with lawyers. What are you trying to say, Harry? I'm saying that Franzi was a philosopher. Ronzi was a, a many damn, things. A damn good one. He was, he <laughs> anyway. was a man of protein talent. Indeed. Uh, anyway, welcome to uh, this edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France. Todd Roberts, I think, will be joining us uh, soonish. Drifting uh, in and out. Yeah, he's, you know, Los Angeles. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, an incident that happened on Easter of. 1698. This would have been March 30, 1698, and that time it was Easter Day. And it's a, a battle of between 400 to 500 Apache, Hokomi, Jano, Suma, Manso, men and women attacking a still sleeping Odom village in southeast Arizona. Why is this so important? Because I think it is. and uh, Because it happened. It, because it happened. And to talk with us about that, uh, we have a um, uh, an anthropologist from the University of Arizona. She's also an archaeologist and a doctorate of philosophy. Uh, Denny Seymour. Denny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. You got a cast of characters in in uh, with you there, and uh, I remember David and Tony, but I don't remember last names or exactly what they do. They look shady to me. <laughs> so we have uh, Tony uh, Burrell and David Tenario, and myself. We're uh, the three members of the Walk Autumn or San Javier ethnographic team. Mm-hmm. We work together on uh, Autumn history. That's great. It, 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 now, there just isn't a whole lot known about uh, autumn history. Is that correct? Yeah, this is Tony Al. It is, uh, you know, majority of people know about the Donna Autumn, and we're uh, a part of that. Uh, but uh, our history is a little different from the Donna Autumn, you know, being from Sanavir and being uh, river people. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't isn't uh, one of the aspects there that, you know, with the Spanish, with their tracing of the Odom history, they were referring to them as Pima, and so I think for a lot of people, they don't associate the two, Odom and Pima. Well, uh, Pima is just an older term that uh, we use for, when we refer to these people uh, historically, but Otham means people in their language, and so more recently they've been pretty much uh, requested and insisted that people refer to them by their traditional name. So they call themselves the people, just like uh, most people mm-hmm. throughout the world. Yeah, I, I seem to remember, I grew up in Arizona, and I seem to remember, uh, must have been in the 70s or uh, 80s when um, that was changed and, and that request came to refrain from using the Pima mm-hmm. Indian uh, and, and instead to Odom. It was a legal thing they yeah, had to I'm, go through. I'm yes. sure it was. Okay, so this this battle in 1698, Easter Day, March 30, 1698, this, uh, uh, you've written a paper on this and I, I just find this absolutely fascinating. What prompted you to come up, come up with this particular paper? 
Well, actually, I've written a couple papers, but main, the main reference is a book called A Fateful Day in 1698. And okay. back in, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was working for the BLM in between school to try to make money and live. And uh, I was stationed on the San Pedro, and I was very interested in uh, Father Kino, the colonial period, and the Spipriotum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went out and looked for these sites, and this is the first one that I found. And there's historic records about it, uh, about the village itself and Father Kino's visits. And then there's an extensive record about this specific battle. So it's, it's a very exciting, engaging story that was told and retold many times, which is why we know so much about it. What, what, so I put the history together with the archaeology. What was it about this particular battle that um, caused it to be passed down through the ages? Well, for the time, it was an incredible victory. Think about it. You're on the San Pedro. You're three miles, basically, from the nearest, next nearest village. And you only have 80 people. And 500 people come and attack you, but you win. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. And it, it basically, the Spaniards before this didn't believe that the Sabaipuri were their allies. They thought they were allies with the enemy Apache and these other groups. Mm -hmm. And this showed that, in fact, they were allies of the Spanish. And uh, basically, thereafter... Uh, the Sabaipri Optum were considered the badasses of the West, basically. <laughs> Everybody feared them, including the Apache. Wow. <laughs> was this part of your doctoral thesis, or was this something that developed afterwards? Oh, this is long after. I, When I was in graduate school, I began studying uh, the ancestry of these folks here, the Optum, the Sabaipri Optum, but... Um, and so it's been an ongoing process, but this work was carried out long after I was out of graduate school. And uh, basically, uh, the excavations occurred around, uh, I forget, but around 2010 or so, for several years. Is the site still being excavated? No, it's not, but these guys can tell you about the visits. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's hear about that. Um. Yeah, about 10 years ago, we uh, we took the um, Santa Barbara District elders out there to look at the site. And, um, you know, they were they were kind of surprised, but um, they were really amazed at uh, what had happened. Because, you know, our, like somebody kind of mentioned, our history is kind of lost. And, um, you know, when we found out, uh, it was just kind of made everybody... Feel proud, I think, you know? Sure. Well, That's the thing about this kind of history is the autumn kept their history, not only oral history, but they also had calendar uh, sticks where they kept mm -hmm. the person who kept the record, kept it for his lifetime, and then it was buried with him. And so think, uh, events that are this old are generally uh, not specifically remembered. So it's remembered in the historic record, and these guys have been uh, really... Uh, excited to learn about this and very proud and, and, yeah, and just oh go ahead well, yeah uh, i just couldn't believe that you know i was there at that site you know where this battle had taken place and like we mentioned you know the community you know when we tell them about those about this battle they get all you know interested and you know they want to go see the site themselves yeah that was going to be my next question what what's the the reaction of the community when they learn about this i mean are they taken aback surprised uh, obviously proud 
you know one of the things that we've been doing is giving a lot of presentations and we've been presenting to like the the youth at Sanavir the uh, and some of the uh, teenagers out there mm-hmm. and when they hear this, when they hear their stories you know you can kind of tell that um, how they kind of sit up and take notice and you know when we tell them that we were uh, more fierce uh, warriors than the Apaches so <laughs> see them, you know, that proud look on them when you mm-hmm. tell them that, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, so it, it was kind of interesting to yeah, watch them. Yeah, because the Apache were supposed to be the badasses of the West. Well, you have to look at the history because period-wise, it, the Apache really moved into their ascendancy after this period. Y- yeah, okay, yeah. You know? Well, I got, I got a kind of a question here, which is, uh, when you guys went out there and you saw this site for the first time, uh, we know it doesn't. It didn't look like it did the day after the battle, but uh, when you look at it and you see it, how how did you able to look at this and say, you know, just say, hey, this is the right spot, you know, you know, because there's not somebody has a sign over there saying this is the spot. Yeah, you guys had to do your homework. You had to, um, you had to have things that led you to, hey, this is the spot. Could you kind of enlighten us on that? Sure. Well, there's several aspects. First of all, Father Kino and his military escorts left a lot of records. And then also Father Kino left incredible uh, maps that he had drawn mm-hmm. uh, showing the general location. Now that'll get you within a couple of miles of the place. But uh, given that I'm a trained archaeologist with uh, uh, quite a bit of field experience, uh, I was able to look for evidence of this type of site. And this type of site is fairly rare. I've recorded all of the known ones. There were only five known before I started studying, and now there's over a hundred. And I've visited every single one of them and uh, recorded uh, and identified, discovered 95, 100 of them myself, uh, 105, I think now. And um, there's a distinct signature. It's very difficult to see, uh, very difficult to understand, uh, but uh, it was clear on this site. And that was the really fun thing about this is because the battle occurred there, it was kind of frozen in time, kind of like Pompeii. And that's one of the reasons that I was so attracted to it, because when you have a a catastrophe like this, uh, things are, to some degree, frozen in time. And so I was expecting all kinds of arrowheads. Okay, you kind of faded away there for a second. We can go that way. Speaking of Pompeii... the, I, I was kind of struck by that uh, title, you know, the study of a Pompeii-like event, because to me, I think of Pompeii as something very cataclysmic, cataclysmic and you know, almost an act of Zeus. And this battle is more like the an act of man, you know, one one group of the uh, the people deciding to, for whatever their reasons, you know to extract vengeance or to for gain or just to kill an enemy uh so i i I have i don't say i have a problem but i don't really wrap around the comparison to pompeii and this particular event or any event like this well really what it has to do with is with any kind of uh event like a volcano or an attack uh people don't have 
don't leave the village in an orderly manner. So basically, when they were attacked, uh, houses were burned, people fled, uh, and, and no one returned. Uh, the medicine people probably returned. We found some evidence of that, uh, probably cleansing the site uh, after it was attacked. Uh, and of course, uh, Father Kino and his military escort, uh, Captain Monhe, went to count the number of enemy dead afterwards. But other than that, it was pretty much avoided because of this. But in in anthropology and archaeology, we talk about cataclysmic events like this because they leave the site as close to uh, frozen in time as you can get. And right. It's not really frozen in time, mm -hmm. but that's really the parallel there we're talking about. There's a lot of things that occurred after the fact. Okay, we've got Todd. Uh, Todd Roberts has joined us now from Los Angeles by phone, and he does have a question that uh, relates back to uh, an incident in, what was it, 1680, Todd? 1680. Uh, the Hopi leader, uh, uh, Shaman, who was a, a, a Tiwa, by the name of El Pope, E-L -E and second word P-O-P-E, led a revolt uh, against the missionaries and the conquistadors, and they slaughtered them, literally. They, they thought they were rid of them, and they did. it took them 16 years. It took the, the, the Spaniards 16 years to come back and get a foothold. And I just find it interesting that that event, which virtually no one knows about, and then your event, which virtually no one knows about, both took place in states that were side by side, but I mean, was there any relation? Did any of did the, to, uh, the Odoms have any relationship with the Hopi and vice versa? And was there any word of El Pope? Was he a, was he a uh, inspiration to them or anything? So what you're talking about is the 1680 uh, Pueblo Revolt in New Mexico. And uh, they did succeed in uh, pushing all of the Spaniards out and some of their native allies who retreated to El Paso. And then, uh, as you noted uh, later, they reasserted, came back in, uh, you know, came back into the area, and, and the Spaniards took back over uh, a few years later. Um, the relationship between these really is more in line with the fact that the Spaniards saw what had happened in uh, modern-day New Mexico uh, and uh, in the northern part, basically uh, from a little bit around Albuquerque, Albuquerque North, and uh, were concerned that it was going to spread throughout the greater Southwest. Mm. And so they were trying to solidify their control of things. And so shortly after that, there were various uprisings uh, by the autumn, uh, but they didn't get as far as that. And, uh, and that's why it was so important, though, for these uh, Savipri autumn who won this battle to prove that they were Spanish allies. And as a matter of fact, when this battle took place, there was uh, warriors from uh, the Santa Cruz River Valley from the Tucson area, San Javier, who had gone over there, about 250 of them, to join 250 warriors at a nearby village to go on campaign against these enemies. So they were basically proving their loyalty, uh, as they were told they needed to by mm. the Spaniards, uh, by going to battle with them against the common enemy, was the way it was 
Wow, this is really, really, really fascinating stuff. We've got to uh, take a pause here for our first commercial break. Already? Yeah, it's that time already. Wow. Uh, We're talking about uh, a fateful battle uh, or day that uh, March 30, 1698, Easter Day, uh, when uh, the Apaches and a bunch of their allies took it on the chin from the autumn. (laughs) And so with that... We're going to take a break here and be back with much more of Emil Franzi's of Voices of the West right after these important messages. Stay tuned. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were filled. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallion.com or call 520-297-0252. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club is one of the best-kept economic secrets in town. This 900-member group maintains one of the finest shotgun shooting ranges in the country, featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and sporting clays fields, and hosts national and international events that bring thousands of people and millions of dollars into our community. The Spring Satellite Grand American Tournament alone involves 1,200 participants for 10 days. Learn more about this and their other contributions to our community at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. As we recognize the service of America's men and women in uniform, let's also honor the families who sacrifice so much every day. Military families endure frequent deployments and separations. They carry on while their loved ones are sent into harm's way and wait patiently for their safe return. If you really want to honor a veteran, look for ways to support their families and thank them for their sacrifices. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777 
Johnny Bond there, Moonlight on the Prairie, Starlight on the Prairie there. Yeah. Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander and Bunker de France. Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles. He's off doing other things right now. And uh, our guests are, first off, I'll just leave it at Denny Seymour and, and uh, Tony and David. And I'm sorry, guys, I just... <laughs> It's, the last names escape the hell out of me. It's Danny so, and her posse. Da- Danny and her posse. We're talking about uh, an incident that occurred in 1698, Easter Day in 1698, when the autumn uh, took the Apaches to the woodshed uh, and uh, in rather convincing battle. When you guys it didn't start out well for them, but n- no, they but never events did. altered. When you guys began the the task of of uh, clearing the site and, and excavating the site. What sorts of artifacts uh, did you recover? Well, we recovered artifacts and features. So we had a bunch of houses, domestic houses, but we also found an adobe walled structure that uh, was used as a place for council meetings hmm. and a place where visitors stayed and also a storage shed. But also this is where the villagers retreated to all the grandmas and babies and everybody retreated there while the warriors ran forward to uh, meet the attacking enemy. And ultimately, the uh, warriors had to retreat into the Stobie Wall structure and, and fight until uh, until they couldn't fight anymore. It's kind um, of like a but tutorial. What we, found, what we found was lots of artifacts, meaning uh, lots of arrowheads and some lance heads and so on. In fact. Uh, one of the articles that you referenced talks about a new battlefield signature for the uh, pre-gun period, basically, mm-hmm. based on projectile point or arrowhead breakage patterns from this battle site. Mm-hmm. So we found all kinds of um, grinding stones and everything left in place because people left and did not come back because it was tainted after that. Hmm. You know, one of the things I, I was still thinking about the Pompeii uh, illusion here, and it, it finally dawned on me in a way, is that these events, the eruption, the attack, that's the moment when these living communities ceased to be living communities and start started into their demise, of the, like as, you, as you refer to, decay and, and uh, just falling into disorder as nature would have it. And one of the things in here that really, really fascinated me was the arrow gathering. How, you know, we, we kind of in the Western world have an idea that you, you shoot your bullet and that's it. With the arrow, you shoot your arrow and then the other guy picks it up and shoots it back at you. And I was really interested. You know, I'd, I'd like to really kind of dig into that how you know as a as an item of trade of collection even also as an item of uh, of uh, trophy meaning arrows is oh yeah okay so one of the things we know about this battle is when they retreated to the adobe wall structure uh, to defend themselves uh the warriors inside were shooting arrows out and the enemy was shooting arrows in and so we have those but when the battle was all over, some of the arrows were collected uh, probably as trophies, as probably were scalps and hands and heads and, and so on. Uh, we know people did that at that time. Um, and so this battle in particular um, had uh, evidence of uh, mainly uh, burning and arrowheads and lanceheads, like I said, but there was 
at the end, uh, nobody was buried except for the handful. Only four or five of them actually died, but 54 enemy died on the site, including men and women. And then uh, at by, by the time they counted them all, 365 Apache, Hano, Manzo, and Suma had died uh, trying to escape. Hmm. So it was a catastrophic event. And, uh, well. And Father Kino wrote about this as well, correct? Father Kino wrote about it. Captain Monhe wrote about it. General Cabronza wrote about it. Uh, people wrote about it because it was so surprising. So the nice thing about this, the interesting thing about this is, okay, so yeah, the 80-person village, uh, they got attacked. Everybody retreated to the adobe uh, structure. They had to give up, ultimately, because somebody broke through the roof. Mm -hmm. and killed something inside and, and they had all these women and babies and the really incredible thing about this story is it's, it's a testament to how much these men cared about their families and that they surrendered at that point, this 80 person village surrendered and they knew the men would be killed the women and children would have been taken prisoner and they would have become wives they would have become uh, children of the Apache and Hukome, except for the boys the older boys and the men would have been killed Mm -hmm. But as soon as they surrendered and the enemy started eating all the food and stuff because they were starving, it was late spring, uh, people in a village about three miles away saw the smoke and heard battle cries and came, and there were 500 warriors that came to their rescue. Wow. They surrounded the village. It was <laughs> phenomenal. They surrounded the village, and the enemy captain said, basically, we need to solve this in a different way because we're all going to get slaughtered. So they did a battle of champions like the Romans did, and... Uh, they took 10 against 10, so 5 against 5, two different groups, and they shot arrows against one another. And the reason they chose that form of battle is the Otham learned to dodge arrows as little boys. Mm -hmm. That was one of the games that they had. And the Apache didn't know that they were so skilled at this, so they let the Otham choose. They let the Spiper choose the method. And, and by the time this battle of champions was over, all nine of the enemy were dead except for the captain, and he started insulting, saying, you fight like women and all of this. They actually said that back then. Too. Oh, my. And so, <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and some other insults. Anyway, so a warrior killed him, and then everybody broke out in the melee, and then they ran towards the mountains, and the spikery killed more of them. You can see why they had such the reputation. You know, that, 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 that style of warfare... Uh, is something that should be adopted and adapted uh, in modern day. Oh, you know, yeah. where where you take ten, take you take your best five, pit them against the enemy's best five, and what happens happens. And if you have an Achilles on your side, you're going to kick who? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that that is just great. That is I just have great. another question here about about the attacking force, the, kind of the breakdown. Uh, you have Apache, Akame, Jano, Suma, and Manso. Now, are, are they all of the same type, you know, like Athabascan, whatever, or were they these identifiably different uh, tribal groups? They were identifiably different uh, tribal groups. So you have the Apache were Athabascan speakers, that's one, and then the Hano, Makome, Manzo, and Sumer were all distinct peoples. And one of the things we know, we know that from the historic record, we know that from the archaeological record, and we also know that because during this battle, they were actually able to find, follow the trail of the dead through the mountains, and they were actually able to count how many of each tribe were killed. Hmm. And that shows you 
that they were painted differently. Uh, they had different facial paint. They had different feathers, probably. They probably had different clothing mm -hmm. on a little bit, uh, wore, wore a garb, and then probably slightly different weapons. So uh, Tony and David can tell you about the weapons that they were using. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, your timeline there is, you know, so well broken down and and you and you had to do that from just the evidence that you had on the site and then of course the uh traditional evidence from the Odom and the Spanish records but do you have a precise timeline it's really it's really neat uh the other thing I, I, I want to hear about the weapons well yeah well the, the, yeah that is a good thing because one of the things that you mentioned lances in here and uh, you know, I when I think of lances, because there's all different ways of using them. Like the Spanish used them as more as a prodding type weapon, mm, a pike. Yeah, like a pike. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in more medieval, earlier times, uh, among the Eastern Indians, uh, the were used more like a spear as right. a, than as a, a lance. And I'm, I was just curious because I, I hadn't thought about how the Southwestern Indians use the use, did they use it as a lance primarily, or did they use it like a spear, or was it both? Uh, it was more like a like a spear, and uh, also they had their uh, the clubs. Uh, we had a, a replica made of one of the one of the war clubs that we used when we do our presentations, and we also have a, a bow and arrow. Uh, stone arrowhead tip. So, and, and, and when yeah, you and, and when you guys the, and when when you the got rod, the shield that they use. Mm -hmm. So when you guys do your presentation, um, do you do you dress the part? No, no. I keep trying to get them to do it, but they won't. <laughs> I mean, you know, come on, it's living history that you're doing there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and if you do, do you club each other? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I used to, I, I I did living history uh, talks when I worked for the Florida Park Service and uh, Civil War uh, era, and so we would dress in Civil War garb to go to the schools and do our presentations, and uh, we we tried to keep it as period as possible, but you know, kids, <laughs> but. They, I think they had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with it. You know, we never knew what century we were supposed to be in when they went to work. <laughs> so well, Tony had a bunch of this made that was that looks just like the uh, they would have had back then, and the, and the kids especially really get off because made a war cap too. Oh yeah, uh, when we showed the war cap at one of our presentations, you know, Harry was like, "Wow, this is what they wore." Yeah. Yeah, I think when they see things like that, they, when the kids see things like that, that gives them even more or spurs more interest uh, than just seeing what, what it is in the book. I mean, they can physically touch it and, and see it and, and so forth. So um, that's really, really cool. I like that. That's way good. You know, one spot. In, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the really nice thing about this whole story is it completely changes our understanding of history. Like you said, the Apache are supposed to be the badasses, and of course they were. I don't want to take that away from them. But uh, earlier in time, these were the, the, the ones, the warriors to be feared. They were feared throughout the land. Uh, in fact, 
the Apache, the Hana, Hukome, Manzo, and Suma all went to a couple of different presidios and, as they say, sued for peace, asked for peace uh, because they were so scared of the Spikery. And the agreements they made is that they would surrender if they were protected by the Spanish against the Spikery. That's how scary these guys were. They're in Wow. You know, there in, 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 the, in the piece here, there's one point, there's a little mention made of uh, an event that was apparently was like about 15 days before where the Oluwakum had attacked another group and that they brought back goodies from that, which apparently showed up in your, in your discovery there. Uh, is there any possibility that this previous event could have been the precursor to this one as a, a revenge raid or something? Well, the thing you have to remember about this time period is the weapons uh, were fairly close range and war was kind of different before this, uh, up until this point. And when they went to battle against each other, at this time period, sometimes six and 700 warriors on the side went to battle against each other. It was kind of ramping up at this time. And they would go and they could see each other. They could hear each other. They knew who was attacking them. So when the, quote, enemy, the Apache and all their allies, uh, were fighting against the Spaniards and their slavery allies, they knew each other. And that's probably why they attacked this village, because some of the lawyers from this village were, in fact, going on these campaigns with the Spanish against them. So they knew darn well who had attacked them and who killed their relatives. And they were bound by their social code to get revenge. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things that interests me too is, you know, your description of uh, finding the shards and the arrowheads and like, and how that was so important with the uh, the flow of the battle because of the range of the bows would be like, I think you said something like 30 to 30, 40 feet. Uh, the taking shelter in the adobe structure meant that the uh, target area would have been restricted for both sides, what they could see from shooting out through the slots and them having to shoot into the slots. So it wasn't going to be a situation where there's going to be arrowheads in every every area you look, but it's going to be in almost prescribed areas. That's what was so incredible about this. The, there were so many projectile points or arrowheads. They were restricted to a fairly small area, not all of them, but most of them. And they had very unique breakage patterns, and I was able to reconstruct that in terms of uh, people have studied it with regard to hunting and butchering sites before, and that's that's how I put that together. Basically, they, uh, the way that they were broken basically is a signature for uh, this type of battlefield hmm. uh, and the pieces that you find and so on. So it's really kind of exciting from that standpoint. So now we have the opportunity to identify battle sites in the prehistoric period uh, during a time period when many uh, anthropologists have thought for so long that there was no warfare pre-Europeans and in fact there was there's quite a bit of violence it's just that the thing we learned from this battle site is when the villagers win you don't find bodies on the site and in the structures because if the villagers win if people getting attacked the villagers won of course they bury their own in a loving way in actual graves and they left the enemy on the surface to, to decay. But if your village is attacked and you lose, that's when you find bodies in the structures and so on, because hmm. the, the, the village is burned and the walls and 
ceilings collapse on them and then you have that evidence preserved that the village that got attacked. It's generally the bodies of the losing sides that are left on and the others, like you say, are ceremonially uh, heated. we got to take a, our next break here. Uh, we're talking with uh, Denny Seymour, David, and Tony about uh, uh, an Easter Day battle, March 30 of 1698, when the Apache and some of their allies uh, were taken to task by the uh, autumn. <laughs> Incredible story this is, and we've got to do this break, and we'll be back with... Much more of Amel Franzi's Voices of the West right after these messages. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Paul Ash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Paul Ash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Man, this is frustrating. It's taken me like five minutes just to load my homepage. Did you try Control-Alt-Delete? Uh-huh. Did you jiggle the cord? Uh-huh. Did you turn it on and off again? Uh-huh. Call Arizona Computer Guru. Don't let viruses get you down. With our Guru Protection Service, we'll keep you virus-free. In fact, if you were to get a virus, we would fix it for free. Speak to a technician right now at 304-8300 or at azcomputerguru.com. Hello? I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses. So they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. Hello, 
Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Tom, the host of the Movie Zealots podcast, and I'm inviting you to give the Movie Zealots podcast a listen. Every episode, my co-hosts and I review the latest box office releases, but there's more than simply just that. We also play games like the Alexa quote of the show and may the odds be ever in your favor and have a from the cutting room floor segment that is an open forum to discuss anything from our thoughts of a Netflix TV series to our experiences with movie subscriptions such as the AMC stubs or movie pass. So after finishing this podcast, please give the movies out podcast a listen. We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google play. Simply search movies out until then. And that's a wrap. You're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. This is the Voices of the West. We are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander in Bunker de France. And our guests are Denny Seymour. And I, Wait a minute, I've got it written down here. Uh, David Tenero and Tony Burrell. Hey, by golly, I got, show, I got him! I finally got him here. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am so totally <laughs> impressed with your skill. And Thank you so talent, much. Uh, and 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 and, and uh, Danny and and guys, I got to tell you the uh, theme to High Chaparral. Hope you watched it when it was uh, on the air. Um, if not, uh, the show's oh, over. Uh, well, yeah, the show's over. But uh, my co-host here, uh, Bunker, he was in fifty-two of those things, and uh, so without uh, most, uh, a lot of times as an Apache. Yes, he he played an apache or he played a soldier or whatever Everything. but he fell off a lot of horses let's put it that way well, um, and got paid for it uh, but uh, if i don't play that high chaparral theme the man walks so, I walk. and he's very he's, he's very valuable to the show so um i, I am yes sir you are. does that mean i get more money you get their little something extra in the envelope for you at the end of the week yeah spider webs <laughs> We spare every expense at this place. <laughs> All right, so uh, where uh, enough of the silliness. Enough of the silliness. We were talking about uh, the weaponry uh, that was used, the uh, artifacts found, the features found, and and w- what's happened to the site now that uh, it's, I guess, pretty much been excavated. You restored it, right? Well, no. no. Not all of it has been excavated. We just did a small portion of it. But before I get into that, what, let these guys tell you what the name of the village is and what it meant. Oh, please. So we call the village Santa Cruz de Gibbonapatea as archaeologists. But mm-hmm. in autumn, this is well, it means how we beat the one. I mean, it, it's how we beat the one. Crochet. To see it. Okay, never mind. <laughs> we have a group discussion here. Okay, all right. Well, we won't, we won't have the official autumn name then. <laughs> there was the place. Anyway, yeah, the place. Yeah. yeah, the place. <laughs> Hereafter so known anyway, as the place. <laughs> we excavated part of the part of the site, but we left a bunch of it for the future. Mm-hmm. And you cover up when you so, get done, right? Oh yeah. We used uh, a special kind of fabric and then put the dirt back in place uh, so that uh, it more can be learned about it in the future. So it's a protected site. We take uh, uh, the them out there every once in a while. We have a while. Do you ever have to worry about uh, somebody vandalizing a site like this? It's a big problem. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, it's a serious problem mm. uh, all the time. And that's why we don't tell people the location. Sure. And that's why we uh, take photos and publish them. We make sure we don't put 
background. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's an article in the current issue of Arizona Highways about the pot hunters and, <clears throat> and what a real problem they are. Well, yeah, I, I, I went through archaeology training when I was with the Florida Park Service, and we heard a lot about that as well, but uh, the site we were able to discover we got our we got our site listed in the uh, uh, important places names uh so that that was and we got to name it too but uh i know well, along those along those lines let me just refer back to the battle site yeah it's it's legal, it's legal on private land for example to pick up uh, yeah. arrowheads mm -hmm. if people had picked up arrowheads on this site just think about the information that would have been lost for for one we wouldn't have identified sure. the battle signature. We couldn't have tell, told where most of the activity occurred on the site during the battle. Mm -hmm. We also couldn't have identified all the different groups that were there. Now, right. the historic record tells us all those groups were there, but we were actually able to see it in the Arrowhead assemblage on the mm -hmm. site. And how they flowed. That was very exciting. And then that helps us identify those same groups in other sites because the signature sure. has only been defined in the last 10 or 20 years. You know, one of the things that, it, that, uh, that you guys revealed to me, which I thought was real interesting, was that, you know, the reuse of arrows and how they would reshape uh, busted points right there on the on the site to, to keep fighting with them. Because when you think about it, there's a finite number of arrows. So, sure. you've, got it, so you've got to be recycling all mm -hmm, the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I figured, I forget what the number I figured, was it 25 or 50,000 arrows probably? Wow. The number of, there were probably 1,000 uh, people, 1,000 warriors there. I can't remember the number that I came up with. Hmm. But think about it. If you're inside the adobe wall structure for protecting yourselves, you're stuck in there and you only have so many arrows, what do you do uh, when you run out? Mm -hmm. You probably don't have supply of flake stone to make more in there, but when the enemy shoots arrows in and if they... You know, you can reshape them if they break off and so on. So, I mean, they were desperate. Basically, every shot counted. Uh, and they were fighting for their lives, mm. literally. Are, are there more instances uh, of the of this kind of thing that, it, that happened in this time period? There are. Of course, when I wrote this, I said it's the most consequential uh, battle of the era in this area. And, of course, other people have written about other later battles that they've said similar types of things since then. Uh, but the, the fact is, is that these battles were consequential enough that they got written down. Uh, this was important to the Spaniards because it was so such an important win. Uh, not only could the Spaniards not believe that so many of the enemy were killed. I mean, it was unbelievable that so many of the enemy were killed. And that's why Father Kino and Monje up mm -hmm. was to count it so they could verify it. And what the Otham got in trade was one, they didn't get slaughtered like they had a few years before at a place called the Massacre. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing is they got clothing and food from the Spaniards. So basically, in addition to the celebrations in the Spanish settlements, uh, they made a collection and rewarded these people for uh, the great victory. Now, their victory was preserving their families and their village and their way of life. They did after the battle, though, even though they won, and they won hands down, they did move. The two villages that were the only two villages on that part of the river, they moved to the Snoida area uh, for about, we don't know exactly how long, six to ten years. Um, discretion is the 
better part of Bowen, mm-hmm. as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, set up residence there in the Snoida area, and then they moved back to the San Pedro and then see them again in the historic record and the archaeological record. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the uh, Sand Canyon and Castle Rock. Uh, what was the similarity between this incident and uh, Sand Canyon and Castle Rock? Well, the reason I mentioned those in the article is because those are known battle sites where uh, one native group attacked and killed another. And so I was looking at the projectile point, the arrowhead breakage patterns there to see if the pattern I was seeing at my site was similar on confirmed battle sites and that's why I brought those up but the difference there is that those in those villages I think if I remember right those are the ones uh, where the villagers lost and so you found bodies whereas in this case the villagers won so you Mm. did not find bodies because the enemy's bodies like I said would have been left on the surface the coyotes and the ravens and so on would have taken care of things Uh, uh, and the uh, the four or five Otham that were killed the four or five Sabipri Otham that were would have been buried in their well, you know, this is a good point to segue into the after the battle and uh, how the, uh, the the victors treated the area, the distribution of uh, like the removal and burial of the Odom as opposed to the others, uh, the taking of household goods. And also because, I, as I understand, because I'm, I'm, I'm Cherokee and Poetan, but it's pretty common among the uh, the American Indian is superstition about the dead and uh, dealing with the dead. So they would have wanted to uh, inter their own people as quickly and honorably with ceremonially as possible and to have almost nothing to do with the dead of their enemy. Well, actually, that is it happens to be true for the Sabipriotham. Uh, in fact, in the ethnographic and uh, historical records, uh, there's quite a bit of information about when uh, somebody died in a house, the house was burned. It was called the mourning ceremony, and it's common throughout the West here. Uh, and in some cases, uh, villages were abandoned. In this case, the village was never occupied again. It's uh, kind of a cleansing by, ceremony, right? Well, so, yeah, basically, after this battle, uh, they buried their own dead, and they left the enemy on the surface. Uh, but it looks to uh, me like, uh, based on what we found in the archaeological record, that medicine people came and cleansed the site. There are uh, quite a few quartz crystals, including a large one, in some of these features, uh, and they're distributed in such a way it suggests that perhaps uh, they were cleansing the site. There's also some little caches and so on. And of course, when um, various uh, Otham came to the site, it was an important place for them, and so they left offerings as well. Okay, we're talking with Denny Seymour, David Tenero, and uh, Tony Burrell uh, about uh, the Easter Day battle in 1698, uh, when the Apaches were uh, taken to task by Happy the Easter <laughs> by the Odom. We're going to take our final break here and be back with much more of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West right after these messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. 
That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallion.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them and they'll help you as they did us design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hi, this is Joe Montaigne. Every time my Uncle Willie tells me about his service in Patton's Third Army in World War II, I'm reminded of what we owe the U.S. Army. Fourteen generations of American soldiers who have courageously defended our nation. Their stories represent the best of America and should never be forgotten. Join me to help build the National Museum of the United States Army, a long overdue tribute to all American soldiers. To learn more, Visit armyhistory.org. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 ski fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com There was a gun that won the West There was a man among the best The fastest gun or man alive A lightning bolt when he drew that bolt 45 and we're back on Abel Franzi's The Voices of the West. Harry Alexander and Bunker de France, Colt 45. That was a good show. That was. Good good television show. Our guests, Denny Seymour, David Tenero, and Tony Burrell. We're in the waning moments of uh, this edition of Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. We're talking about the um, Battle of 1698, mm-hmm. the Apache lost. Well, tell us about the use of uh, ritualized use of crystals in the cleansing of the village. Well, that's not really appropriate for this show, but um, one thing I would like to tell you, what do you know about the Spifery? Have you ever heard of the Spifery before this event? No, I have I totally not. Can't. I have not. So, and, yeah, so go ahead. I'm sorry, I missed yeah, the question. You know, oh, yeah. You know, uh, when we started this research about 12 years ago, uh, we were trying to figure out what uh, Kino meant when he, on his map, he shows the area where the so we lived, uh, Santa Cruz and San Pedro Rivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started doing presentations out at the main reservation and out at the village of Santa Rosa, 
elders told us that, it, that in autumn you would see Svalbard, uh, which means enemy-like. And I think Father Kino wrote it the best he could. You know, Svalbard, he put Svalbard. Hmm. And that means that I guess we were kind of like, because uh, the enemy of means uh, enemy, and that was the Apache. They were our enemy. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of like uh, Apache-like or enemy-like. Yeah. 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 Want to find out further, uh, more about the spikery, uh, check out our video on YouTube and then just uh, pay attention to our upcoming talks. Yeah, it's called Who Are the Spikery Authors? Yeah, that brings up a good thing. Uh, if folks wanted to contact any of you, uh, how exactly. would they go about that? This is the time for shameless, uh, shameless uh, uh, promotion. <laughs> well, so um, one thing they can do is look up my name uh, on academia.edu, and you can download a bunch of papers there. There's some links to some of the videos, but you can also go to YouTube under my name. Uh, and uh, and look at the videos there and leave messages and then we can get in touch with you that way. Uh, we can. Uh, I don't really want to give up the phone number right here. But no, no. We're we're online and so on and uh, our emails are available and uh, we can be. Uh, uh, got, you can get a hold of us at San Javier. Go ahead, David. Yeah, and if you want to contact um, our office, you can call uh, area code five two zero five seven three four zero zero zero, and that'll uh, be the uh, San Javier district office. Well, is is there a main website that folks could visit to uh, learn more about this? Well, uh, my webpage, uh, you can get there by com. It's frozen and has been for a couple of years, so I'm creating a new one. But they can learn more about it. Like I said, look up my name, Denny Seymour, on academia.edu. And uh, you can download some papers on this and also some of our videos and so on. And we'll be putting a video together on this battle specifically. But oh, cool. So there's several uh, videos, uh, and we give presentations all the time. Where's your next presentation? Uh, we don't have one planned right now because of COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, everything's been canceled. Yeah, but yeah. The, mm -hmm. the, the next talk I'm giving is in October. At It's a talk on Centuries de Terranate Presidio, and then there'll be a site tour. And uh, if anybody's interested in that, they can get a hold of Old Federal Archaeology Center who is sponsoring it. You have to register in advance. Uh, but that's also on that academia page. You can look that up. And my talks are announced on there. It's our talks. So. Well, this has been way, 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 been, way cool. It's been fascinating. Yeah, I've learned a ton of stuff. I know. Stuff. It, it, when, just when you think you know some history, you find out you don't. Well, that's <laughs> the way I feel. Just when I think I know squat, I squat. Yeah, right. But no, this, the, Isn't this thing. What's that? Isn't that the exciting thing about this, though? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're learning new things about, about parts of history that people thought they already knew and understood. Sure. And uh, these guys, this whole community is learning new things, and they're conveying information to us, and we're learning new things. So I, really I, I think it's great that, uh, you, uh, that Tony and, and, and David are able to take this back to, um, back to the community and tell people about this. This, is, this was your... These are your ancestors, folks. You know, the, the 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 Caucasian doesn't have much of that. The European, they yeah, can the go European, back, they yeah. can go back to Europe as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but anyway, uh, but uh, just you know, the the richness that you're also you know 
adding to mm -hmm. the Odom culture, uh, yeah. I know they have to be very appreciative of it because the European culture has, so, for so many years, tried to suppress that uh, any yeah. memory of history or yep. culture. Denny, thank you so much. Tony, thank you so much. David, thank you so much. We really appreciate you spending uh, your Saturday afternoon with us. Con mucho gusto. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And that's it for this edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Uh, what are we doing next week? I have no idea. Um, we'll do it. Though. Something. <laughs> so until then. Adios. So long. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. 